0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies. I'm Philip Michael Sherman, a host of the channel. Today we'll be talking to Dov Weiss about his new book, Pious Irreverence, Confronting God in Rabbinic Judaism. Judaism is often described as a religion that tolerates, even celebrates, arguments with God. Unlike Christianity and Islam, it is said Judaism endorses a tradition of protest as first expressed in the biblical stories of Abraham, Job, and Jeremiah. In pious irreverence, Dove Weiss has written for the first scholarly study of the pre-modern roots of this distinctively Jewish theology of protest, examining its origins and development in the rabbinic age. Weiss argues that this particular Jewish relationship to the divine is rooted in the most canonical of rabbinic texts, even as he demonstrates that in ancient Judaism, the idea of debating God was itself a matter of debate. By elucidating competing views and exploring their theological assumptions, the book challenges the scholarly claim that the early rabbis conceived of God as a morally perfect being whose goodness had to be defended in the face of biblical accounts of unethical divine action. Pious irreverence examines the ways in which the rabbis searched the words of the Torah for hidden meanings that could grant them the moral authority to express doubt about and frustration with the biblical God. Using characters from the Bible as their mouthpieces, they often challenged God's behavior, even in a few remarkable instances, envisioning God as conceding error and declaring to the protester, You have taught me something. I will nullify my decree and accept your word. Please welcome Dove Weiss to New Books Network. Hi, Dove.
1: Thank you, Philip. It's really an honor and privilege, and and I want to just thank you for for doing the interview. I'm looking forward to it.
0: We usually begin by asking for a a brief biographical sketch, something about your background and how you came to be interested in uh, your field of study, and particularly how you became interested
1: in writing a book about confronting God in rabbinic literature. Sure. Um, Well, I grew up in an Orthodox Jewish home, in a rabbinic home. My father, my grandfather were all rabbis, so I began studying rabbinic literature at the age of eight years old. uh, And Continued my studies uh, through high school, college, and then I entered into rabbinical school, um, an Orthodox rabbinical school, Yeshiva University. So I'm an ordained rabbi, and I spent five years um, teaching in a rabbinical school, but I had a crisis of faith um, during my years uh, functioning as a rabbi and no longer wanted to defend the orthodoxies of my faith i felt uncomfortable making the claim that judaism was true and other religions were not true so i wanted to leave that occupation but at the same time i had a deep love for jewish literature for jewish history jewish culture and i wanted to continue teaching the tradition but i wanted to do so in a context in which i could be fully free to offer my own views and opinions so i enrolled In the uh, Divinity School of the University of Chicago, where I had initially thought I would study modern Jewish theology with Paul mendes Flohr, the great Buber uh, scholar, Rosenzweig scholar. But I took one course in ancient Jewish biblical interpretation um, on what is called Midrash, which is the rabbinic understanding of the Hebrew Bible from the second century to the eighth century. And I fell in love with midrash, uh, particularly with Michael Fishbane, who's, who is the great scholar of midrash. And from then on, I decided that I would devote myself to its study, but to the study of rabbinic literature from an academic, scholarly perspective, rather than from a devotional one. Um, to see beauty in the tradition, but also to be honest, intellectually honest with some of the the darker sides. Um, of our uh, tradition.
0: So your work explores this common claim about the Jewish tradition, namely that, that Judaism drawing on the biblical tradition is really far more comfortable with human beings complaining against or protesting the divine than perhaps other monotheistic traditions. You tell a slightly more complicated story about the role of protest and debates about protest in rabbinic literature. Can you rehearse that in sort of a broad outline for us?
1: Sure. I mean, it's become commonplace in recent years that unlike Christianity and Islam, Judaism is a religion that embraces the notion of challenging uh, God. The very name Israel comes, of course, from the book of Genesis, where Jacob wrestles with the, the, uh, the angel of God and the, the angel of God tells Jacob that his name no longer shall be Jacob, but shall be Israel because he has uh, Sarita Imhael, because Jacob has struggled uh, with God. And So in recent years, it's become very common for, for people to talk about. Uh, Judaism celebrates uh, protests, but very often they move from biblical examples of biblical characters who confront God, Abraham, Moses, Jeremiah, Job, various Psalms, and Habakkuk. And then they move quickly to the 18th or 19th century and talk about the great rabbis of the pietist movement, the great rabbis from Eastern Europe and and Russia, known as the Hasidim, who very often challenged God. And then they move to, of course, the the post-Holocaust theologians, Um, who also celebrate that motif. Of course, the writings of Elie Wiesel. There's a very famous uh, Jewish theologian uh, at Emory, David Blumenthal, who's written also about uh, the need to embrace uh, the act of protest. But I thought that there's a whole whole middle, you know, from the biblical period until the modern period, that really kind of uh, gets lost in this story of the Jewish protest tradition. And the book really tries to, Ah, uh, reveal the 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 roots, the beginning of the protest uh, tradition that of course, is distinct from Christianity. Why is it that Judaism is a religion that ended up embracing this re, rela, um, relationship to the divine? But in Christianity, we find it much uh, less so. So I try to go back to late antiquity and look at the differences between early Judaism and Christianity. Um, as to the central question of how one relates to the divine.
0: So you do this by looking at sort of the sprawling corpus of midrashic literature from late antiquity, and in the course of that, you introduce us to some rather major texts that you're going to draw on for your argument, and you spend a really a good amount of time exploring what's called the Tanhuma Yelamdehu corpus of texts. These are works which you claim even many students of rabbinics don't particularly know well. So could you say a little bit about your sources and particularly about those Tanhuma Yellam Danu texts and why you think they're important for the, the argument that you're making?
1: Sure. Let me just um, um, begin by uh, letting our listeners know that there are basically three or four primary um, stages um, in the development of, of rabbinic literature. Rabbinic literature goes from the 2nd century until um, the 8th or 9th. 10th century. Uh, the earliest is what's called the Tanaitic uh, texts, which are second, third century rabbis and texts. Then you move to the fourth and fifth century of the Common Era. Those are rabbinic texts known as the Amoraic texts uh, and the Amoraim. And then, of course, you have uh, the post Amoraic, the sixth or early seventh century uh, rabbinic commentaries on the Torah. Um, and the Tanhuma Ilamdenu are the uh, uh, genre or collection or family of texts. Uh, 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 this is a loose con- loosely connected uh, family of texts that are called Tanhuma Ilamdenu. Um, and Mark Bregman, who's a great philologist uh, from north Car- University of North Carolina, at Greensboro, he has. Dated the core, most of the, the, the texts from Tanhumma Ilamdenu as comp- being composed in the sixth or the beginning of the seventh uh, century. So the Ilam Yilamdenu is really the third stage in the development of rabbinic literature. And then, of course, you have the last stage, which is the early medieval uh, Midrashic texts, that, um, um, for example, texts like Pirkei de Rabbi Eliezer and the Midrash of Psalms. So my work really deals with all of these rabbinic texts from the earliest Tanaitic to the Amoraic to the post-Amoraic, and then to the early medieval. But what I noticed in terms of the protest tradition is that the strongest voices, the most radical texts that celebrate this motif of protesting God, appears in this third stage um, of the production of rabbinic texts called Tanhuma. And what the reason why I make this argument is because these texts either confrontationalize um, earlier non-confrontational texts. So for example, if an earlier text reads the story of Abraham and Abraham's conversations with God in a non-confrontational way, the layer of Tanhuma will often take this earlier strata of text and in its rewriting of the earlier text, they'll input you know language of, of of criticism towards God that never really that never appeared in the earlier strata. Or sometimes the 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 text will completely offer a new interpretation of the biblical narrative and that interpretation is based upon a new story where Abraham or Moses or or Jeremiah are criticizing God and that story never even appears in pre- Tanchuma text, and the book tries to offer various explanations as to why it is that the strongest voices of protest in rabbinic literature occur in the Tanchuma Yilam Deinu text, um, and that's something that I develop at length you know, throughout, throughout the book, um, that Tanchuma uh, Yilam both as the strongest voices of protest, and what that did is, maybe we'll talk about that in, in a few minutes, is that that also triggered a... A, a, a response from the more stringent um, anti-protest uh, rabbinic groups. But we'll talk about that another another question.
0: Well, let's begin with those anti-protest voices, because uh, you look at early rabbinic sources, so these Tanaitic sources, which mm-hmm. are largely opposed to protest. Um, and I wonder if you could say why you think this oppositional approach emerges in the early layer of rabbinic texts, particularly given the fact I think that these texts are produced in the midst of one of the greatest upheavals in Jewish history, uh, the transition from sort of Second Temple Judaism to the the emerging rabbinic uh, and consolidation of their emerging rabbinic movement. Why the anti-protest language there, of all places?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, yeah, I mean, in, in the Bible, we, we don't have any statement in the Bible that one is prohibited from ever challenging God. Of course, in the Bible... It is said that one can't curse God, that one can't swear God's name in in vain. Um, But this is really a new moment in in the history of Jewish theology where there is a very clear uh, prohibition against criticizing God. And let me just bring one example from uh, a very early rabbinic uh, text called Sifre, Sifre Deuteronomy, which is a third century commentary on the book of Deuteronomy. The Sifrei cites a verse from Deuteronomy chapter 32, that God's ways, God's work um, is perfect. All of God's ways are just. And the Sifrei says, from here we learn that no one is allowed, no one should ever criticize God. No one could ever question God's decision to destroy the world in the times of Noah. No one can question God's decision to destroy uh, the, the the people of Sodom in the way that He did. Nobody could question God's decision to choose the lineage of Aaron as the priesthood. Nobody can challenge God's decision to um, elect to decide that Day, King David and his descendants were forever going to be the kings um, of Judea. Why? Because God is fully righteous in everything God does, and therefore criticizing God would be an action that would imply that perhaps god made a mistake. So even criticizing god is a statement somehow that god is imperfect, which of course would be a horrible thing to say about an all perfect god. So one approach, you know, just conceptually speaking before i try to explain, you know, historically why i think this is emerging at this time, is to say that 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 challenging god somehow and implies metaphysical something uh, is an error you're making a false statement about the me- the, the, the metaphysical realm um, the, the other option that we see in many rabbinic texts is the problem of critiquing god is not that it implies something false about god but that is an act of disrespect the problem is not one of error the problem is a re- uh, problem in relationship right just as you should never you know criticize um, uh, a king you should never criticize god it's a lack of uh, lack of kavod, lack of um, respect. So those are two kind of um, the conceptual basis for the anti-protest position. And I think that when we turn later to the rabbinic pro-protest view, they're going to have to find ways to conceptually speaking justify their support of uh, of critiquing God on those two on those two realms. Why is it happening at this time in Jewish history? And I think you raised a great question. I mean, we're now speaking of a time in which Jews really were coming to terms with the destruction of uh, of the temple, um, the loss of of, of the the, the second temple, which was destroyed in 70 CE. So I offer two explanations in the book. Um, They're not my explanations. I'm drawing from two great Jewish scholars of the 20th century. The first is Abraham Joshua Heschel, the great rabbi at the Jewish Theological Seminary in uh, New York, um, and he claimed that a lot of this has to do with the personal theology of a great rabbi named Akiva. Akiva perhaps is the greatest of the rabbis who lived in the second century. Uh, he was well known for supporting the the Bar Kokhba revolt, the revolt against Rome in the 132. Of the common era. This is 60 years after the destruction of the temple, which, of course, was not, um, uh, the, the Jewish people did not win that war. Um, and Akiva developed uh, a, a theology which is a theology that suffering is a positive thing, that suffering is an expression of divine love. Um, in the Talmud, it's called Chavivan Yesurin. Um, and therefore, Akiva would constantly claim. That when when good things happen in our lives, we should thank God. But when bad things happen in our lives, we should also thank God. That is the relationship we should have vis a God. That suffering is not a statement of divine abandonment, which is, of course, what the Christians were arguing. Right? The destruction of the temple, the Jewish exiles, showing that God disfavors us. Akiva wants to say the opposite, that, that suffering doesn't necessarily mean Um, that God has abandoned the Jewish people, that somehow suffering can be a positive moment where one can show one's um, uh, devotion to God. Um, And in fact, Akiva himself was martyred by the Romans in the second century and most famously um, was smiling at the moment that that he was being martyred by the Romans. In In Akiva's worldview, not only is suffering positive, you know, vis-a-vis our own human experiences, but Akiva also understood God as being uh, in suffering with his people. This is another kind of a, an image of God, a God who doesn't uh, punish his people or save his people, but a God in Akiva's worldview who is suffers with the Jewish people and is one with the Jewish people. So I think Akiva's theology and worldview, I think, had a profound influence. Um, um, and therefore, for Akiva, we never should criticize God. Um, for the terrible, difficult things that happen to us because this is a sign of divine love. This was Heschel's perspective. Arthur Marmerstein uh, took a very different view. Marmerstein was a a great Jewish studies scholar uh, who lived in London, and he claimed that part of what animated this new prohibition against challenging God really has to do with uh, inner Christian uh, debates that were being waged over the morality of the Old Testament and the morality of the Old Testament God. Of course, there were various um, groups of people—Christians, um, Marcion and, and his and his students, as well as various Gnostics—who argued that the Old Testament uh, God was, was not the same God as the Father uh, of Christ, but that the God of the Old Testament. Uh, is either a evil deity, as Marcion would argue, or an imperfect uh, god, as various Gnostic sects w- would claim, and they often look to various biblical stories and, uh, and an attempt to highlight morally problematic actions that were waged uh, by God, either m- morally problematic laws or morally problematic uh, behavior, and the, the emerging uh, uh, Orthodox uh, Christian thinkers how to then respond and defend the morality of the Old Testament God. And I think these arguments, these conversations, which, by the way, were also being uh, uh, criticized by pagans, pagans as well, people like Celsus and Porphyry and um, even even Julian the Apostate to some extent were critical of the morality of the Old Testament God. And Marmerstein argues that these, kind of, these debates that were being waged, um, um, during this period reached the rabbis, and therefore the rabbis didn't want to give any uh, credence, any credence to these types of critiques being waged against the Old Testament God, and therefore they prohibited uh, any Jews from um, echoing or mirroring any of these critiques that were being waged by these various groups uh, that saw in the Old Testament God evil, e- either an evil deity or a highly imperfect one.
0: Given that context, how then do these pro-protest voices start to emerge in rabbinic literature, and how do the anti-protest voices respond to the suggestion that protest might be possible and might be uh, permissible?
1: Yeah, so what you have in, in, not in the earliest stage of rabbinic literature, in the earliest stage of rabbinic literature, there seems to be a very clear voice um, um amongst the rabbis that challenging or critiquing God is a deeply problematic one. Um and really the figure here, as I mentioned, is Akiva and, and an early Amoraic rabbi Rabbi Eliezer. But what you start to see already in in the Amoraic period is what I would call cracks, early cracks in the opposition, where you get the sense that something seems to be changing. You have these rabbinic texts where um, you get the sense that there is a certain ambivalence or a certain sympathy to uh, the act of confrontation. Let me give you you a a great example. Some rabbinic texts state the following. One should never challenge God, right? And say the following things. And the author then lists about 20 things, 20 morally problematic things that God did in detail. And the author then says, one should never ever, ever think of those things. Now, obviously, you know, maybe the author unwittingly, you know, gave, you know, gave voice to the very thing that he was trying to suppress. But there are moments, and I go through this in the book, where one gets the sense that there is certain sympathy or ambivalence, um, or maybe even a subversive support for these moral critiques. And what better way to communicate these moral critiques than to couch it in in, in the context of well I'm an I'm an anti-protest rabbi, you know, and then presenting what shouldn't be done, this is a great way, a subversive way to get your critiques um, in through the back door. Um, but claim of course that I'm not saying such a thing, right? One should never say the following twenty things. But you get the sense when reading these texts that there is a deep sympathy um, by some of the rabbis for Um, For some of these questions or or at least they're deeply struggling um, with um, with God's morality in the Bible. And this is a way in which they can express those ambivalences and anxieties, but to do so um, in a safe way. So we see cracks in the opposition. We we also see is um, what I call deterioration of the opposition, where some of these very unequivocal early texts, Tanitic texts like the Akiva text, where. You know, it's very clear one can never challenge God. When these texts are are rewritten, or not rewritten, are reworked or re-presented in later rabbinic texts, the language is moderated, and sometimes the the language is completely transformed, where the prohibition no longer exists. There are other times where where later rabbinic texts will add to the 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 um, the prohibition in ways in which we'll neutralize the prohibition. So let me give you one example. There's one text that says that Abraham once, you know, harshly criticized God. And it's very clear from this rabbinic text that that was a deeply problematic act. A later r- rabbi um, then added on the following line. In response to this critique, God conceded that he was wrong, Right. So what that does is that it shifts the whole force of that rabbinic teaching. Right. Because the rabbinic teaching initially was about the problematic action. But when you add another layer, which says that God. After being critiqued admits God's own failures, well, then that creates a, a, a lot more ambiguity as to the legitimacy of the act of critique. Right. So the critique is, is problematic. But then on the other hand. God concedes the mistake, you get the sense that there is something valuable in the critique, that it actually moved God to um, change his mind. Of course, then we have, in late rabbinic literature, many texts that are not that um, uh, unclear. I mean, there are late rabbinic texts that are very proud, that celebrate the, the, uh, the act of critique. You have many texts where God even announces, you know, Um, I bemoan God's death, uh, Moses's death. Who after Moses will fill his place? Who will fight the battles against me in defending the people of Israel? You know, where you have these texts that really um, glorify uh, confrontation. So, for example, there's a very famous Talmudic text where um, where the leader in the prayer service is told not go up and pray, but go up and do battle. Right. That, that, that the the person who leads the synagogue prayer has to understand that he is engaged in, in battle with the divine. We also have about 150 cases where the rabbis retell the biblical narrative and have biblical protesters challenging God, even where moments where when you look in the Bible, there is no protest. So the rabbis seem to adopt this uh, uh, confrontation as an interpretive tool to read scripture and they place dozens of critiques into the mouths of biblical heroes. And it's, it's clear that they're not doing so because they see this as a problematic act. It becomes very clear that they view this as a positive act. And certainly in those moments where after the biblical hero challenges God, God responds, I'm wrong. You've taught me something I'll do it differently next time. So you get a very different sense from these dozens of texts than you did in the earliest texts of Akiva. One should never, ever question uh, God. I mean, the very character who was said by Akiva to make this prohibition is Moses. Moses in late rabbinic literature levels, you know, dozens of challenges uh, against God, and I think what happens then is very interestingly is in the late rabbinic period. In response to the glorification of protest in late rabbinic literature, you then have a backlash. You have a uh, stringent, um, um, you know, prohibitive backlash where rabbis who are opposed to protest become extreme, become radicalized. They then make the move that not only is protesting God prohibited which is what we find in the earliest layers of rabbinic literature. But now challenging God in late rabbinic literature is a a prohibitive act that is accompanied with punishment. So what destroyed the Second Temple? It was the fact that Jews criticized God. Criticizing God um, is accompanied with various punishments of of excommunication, of, of God will maim anybody who challenges God. Um, and you have this kind of this this all of a sudden out of nowhere, you have these claims that criticizing God is now punishable. And I think what you have is this snapshot of the sixth and early seventh century during the time period that the Tanhumah was composed. You have a central cultural debate being waged within rabbinic literature over the, the legitimacy of confrontation. The pro-protest is extreme celebration of protest. Anti-protest is extreme That protest is a grave sin that is tantamount in certain texts to heresy.
0: When you start looking at some of these protest narratives in detail, you talk about topologies of protests and the way that these, the the forms these protests take in the rabbinic text. Can you talk about a few of these topologies and, and how they're important for understanding the nature of the protest itself?
1: Sure. Um, What I try to do in the third chapter is uh, complicate what we mean when we say challenge or protest. I mean, there are a lot of different types of challenges and protests, and they're not all the same. And I get at that in two ways. One is by looking at rare moments in which the rabbis themselves reflect on the legitimacy of protest. Right. So you have about a dozen or so texts where the rabbis distinguish between legitimate challenges of God and illegitimate challenges of God. And they do so by making three fundamental distinctions in in different areas. Number one, sometimes the rabbis will distinguish distinguish between different tone of the protest, whether the tone is a tone of merely questioning God Is the challenge a challenge that tries to persuade God to adopt a different position, which is a little bit stronger than a mere questioning of God? Or the strongest and most problematic expression vis-a-vis God is a challenge that more than tries to persuade God, is a challenge that um, finds fault with God. And I think the rabbis in various different texts distinguish between Challenge as a question, challenge as persuasion and challenge as false finding. And interestingly enough, you, you see these types of distinctions also in Greco-Roman writings and in particular the writings of, of Plutarch. Another type uh, of distinction the rabbis have is not the tone of the protest, but the, the topic of the protest is the protester challenging God. For the sake of. Of himself or herself or for the sake of others challenging God um, for the sake of others is deemed a more uh, a more legitimate action Uh, criticizing challenging God for one's own sake is deemed more problematic within rabbinic literature. And then the third, which I think is the most uh, prominent type of uh, distinction uh, the rabbis make is not over the type of tone or the type of topic, but the type of protester. Does the protester have a a close relationship with God or not? Is the protester an insider or an outsider? And the closer the protester is towards God, uh, the more legitimate it is to criticize God. So, for example, you have rabbinic texts that say that Job's fundamental problem is that The problem is not that Job argued with God, it's that Job thought he was a friend of God, right? That Job didn't realize that he was just a servant of God, and servants can never challenge their master, right? If Job was close with God, for example, a very famous um, um, uh, Jew in the the rabbinic period, or right before the rabbinic period, was Choni the circle maker, and he challenges God and it is said that he 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 had a right to challenge God because he was considered like a son to God. So somehow the relationship you have with God, close or far will determine the legitimacy of critique and you see this also in Greco-Roman writings where it is said that one has a right to criticize a superior as long as you are you you have a friend a friendship um, or you have uh, a relationship that is equivalent to a relationship between a parent and child, or between uh, spouses. Now, of course, this makes sense if you understand the act of critique as an act of disrespect, as a, as an act that that kind of flattens the necessary hierarchy. The more you see, um, the more you see the, the the criticism as coming from an insider, either as a family member or a friend. That act is less problematic because. There's no need to maintain this kind of a strict hierarchy between between, let's say, a king and a a citizen or between a master um, and a slave. The other um, way I try to get at uh, typology is not by looking at rabbinic distinctions between legitimate protest and illegitimate protest, but it's by looking at rabbinic the rabbis not as evaluators of protest, but the rabbis as practitioners of protest themselves so what i try to show in the book is that the rabbis adopt various literary uh, um, uh, frameworks uh, in which they launch their protests of god so for example the rabbis will often challenge uh, a god Through, again, through using the mouthpiece of biblical characters. And I should add that one of the things I try to argue is that the rabbis, many of the rabbis love this theme of confrontation, but of course they're not doing the confrontation directly. I mean, the confrontations are being done by biblical characters, which is a way in which to celebrate the act, but also is a way in which they can shift the responsibility. Um, right. On somebody else. Right. Nobody can get mad at you because they're not the ones that are leveling the protest. It's the biblical characters. What you also achieve there is the ability to hear the divine response, because in the rabbinic period, we don't have prophecy. Um, but putting that aside, the rabbis often present their criticisms of God by using the following three literary settings. One is the liturgical setting. They often call the act of protest an act of prayer, right? So when, when they have Moses yelling at God for, God, why don't you let me into the land of Israel, which, by the way, doesn't appear in, in the Bible itself, right? Moses is just, just supplicates God. God, please, please let me in. In rabbinic literature, Moses really goes after God. You know, you are unjust, God. You know, you, you, you're, 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 you're in violation of the commandment not to oppress your worker, You're You've abused me. I mean, really radical language. Um, But of course, the rabbis will often present that, oh, this is merely a prayer of Moses. Right. So what that that does is, is it legitimizes the act of protest because it's being done via a religiously religiously sanctioned act. Right. This is not labeled a protest. This is a prayer of Moses. Um, So it legitimizes the, the the act. Um, it moderates the critique on one level because it's not a protest; it's a prayer. But on the other hand, once it's once it's a legitimate act, once it's conceived of as a prayer, um, of course, you could then radicalize the content, right? So you, the, the 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 form of uh, of the of the protest is moderate. This is just a prayer, but then the protester uh, could then radicalize the content uh, because. It has shelter because it's being sheltered by a religiously sanctioned act. The other uh, very, uh, the other, other times the rabbis present critiques of God in a forensic setting um, as a courtroom case. And this is something that Mira, Mira Kensky um, has written about in, in, in her book um, about the divine courtroom that very often critiques of God are, 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 are set in a courtroom where God is judge. And the protester is a defendant, and one gets the sense in these moments, as Mia Rakensky has shown, that very often um, the judge is really not is not God, but the judge is actually the reader who listens to the criticisms being leveled by the litigant towards God, right? So 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 now God is on the, on the defense. The human the human litigant is really going after the judge because the courtroom typically is not um, is not the lowest court. The courtroom is like an appellate court where God has to then rule on God's prior decisions. So you have a litigant, let's say, who's going to hell and who's judged as if he's going to hell. And the litigant then complains to God saying that what you did to me in my life. You know is immoral, and then God says ultimately, often you're right and I'm wrong, and you get the sense that in these court cases, it's God who's really um, on trial, and that what what this does is something very similar to the prayer. What it does is, is look, a, a, a defendant has the has the right to lay out the strongest case possible, right, and 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 perhaps there's also no concern about disrespecting the judge because the judge in this context has a tremendous amount of authority. So this is just a courtroom case, right? This is just a litigant who's, 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 who's offering a defense, who's offering a plea. But of course, it's really not. It's, 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 a, it's a very, very strong attack on the judge. Um, and I think the same thing is at play here. On the one hand, it moderates the critique uh, by giving it a, a religiously sanctioned setting of a courtroom case. But what it also does is it allows for the litigant to, pre- to present a very, very strong radical case against God. The last uh, of, of, uh, setting that protests often take, the last literary form that protests often take is the parabolic, which is the rabbis often use parables to convey their message. So, for example, when Moses challenges God, over let 's say not allowing Moses to enter into the land of Israel, the rabbis will then say well it 's very similar to a relationship between an employer and an employee you know where, where the employee doesn 't get the wages that uh, that he should get and what we notice and this is not something that i've realized it 's something that Alan Mintz um, has shown in, in his book Horban is that sometimes the 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 strongest critiques of God are placed not in the description of Moses's relationship to God, but it's often placed within the parable itself, um, and that may be uh, also a, a, a shelter. Right? We're not going to ever claim that Moses said that to God, but of course, when you draw on this parable, the let's say you know the employer is telling the employee you know you're you're abusing me, right? So that. Strong language of critique will only be done in the parable section, but not in what the parable is trying to highlight. And that's another way of um, of protection, another way of saying something radical, but not saying something radical.
0: You argue that the rabbinic protest narrative is important for understanding rabbinic ethical sensibilities can you provide an example of how the rabbis make use of these protest narrative, these protest narratives to engage in broader ethical reflection? That is, using rabbinic literature as a window into sort of a rabbinic ethical worldview.
1: Sure. Um, what I argue is that the rabbis. The question is now. Okay, fine. You know, the rabbis often engage in producing critiques. Or protest against divine conduct by using biblical the, the mouths of biblical characters. The question is why? Okay, why do they do so? Um, and what I try to argue is that very often the rabbis produce confrontational narratives because they are bothered. They're morally bothered by certain actions that God took in scripture. And what Um, Producing these protests allow it allows for the rabbis to express their ethical concerns, their ethical struggles um, with God um, to do so indirectly. Um, But it is a cathartic act. So, for example, as I mentioned earlier, you know, Moses is not allowed into the promised land after everything he did. He led the Israelite people. 40 years in the desert, he's denied entry into the land of Israel. And I think that this bothered many of the rabbis. And one way to resolve, one way to uh, um, respond to that struggle is to, to place these struggles, these moral anxieties, these moral views into the mouths of biblical characters. I'll give you another example. Um, in, the, in the Ten Commandments, it says that God will punish children for the sins of the parents. And I think this deeply troubled many of the rabbis. This seems this, this seemed to op- oppose this notion that only the righteous, only the the wicked, excuse me, should be punished, not not the righteous. But yet, how would God allow in the Ten Commandments, no less? How would God allow in the Ten Commandments this theology that children are punished for the sins of the parents? So I think one you know one classical move to make, and this is something that Moshe Halbertal. Um, has written extensively in in his book, um, Interpretive Revolutions in the Making, is that the rabbis often reinterpret scripture based upon their moral presuppositions, right? If if God, who's the author of the Bible, according to the rabbis, is fully moral, then of course, um, if something seems in the Bible to be immoral, either a divine law or a divine action, well, then we have to rewrite the narrative or rewrite the law. This is Halbertal's claim that the rabbis are always charitable vis-a-vis their reading of scripture because scripture is divine, and therefore the rabbis engaged in the in the most charitable reading possible. So what I've tried to argue is not that Halbertal is wrong, um, but that there is a whole another area in rabbinic literature, not with regard to rabbinic law, but with regard to rabbinic narratives where the rabbis aren't always charitable vis-a-vis divine actions, where you have many, many moments in Scripture where God engages in morally problematic acts, and instead of the rabbis justifying it and apologizing for it, the rabbis express their own moral concerns um, and place them into the mouths of biblical characters, and the biblical characters are the ethical mouthpiece of the rabbis It's a way for the rabbis to do ethics, to look at the biblical narrative and to look at how the rabbis rewrite that biblical narrative. And that gap between the biblical narrative and the rabbinic narrative, that gap is where you can find rabbinic ethics. You don't just need to find rabbinic ethics when the rabbis are doing rabbinic ethics, right? Like in the fathers of Rabbi Nathan in the work of, of, of John um, Schoffer. That you can see ethics by turning to biblical interpretation um, and seeing the gaps between the Bible and rabbinic literature, either in the Halbertalian sense of looking at how the rabbis morally reinterpret the Torah or by looking now at my book and seeing how the rabbis refuse to morally reinterpret the Torah. They, they, They live with the problem. They live with the moral problem of how God can do X, Y, and Z. And they express those Concerns and questions without resolution. Now it's a lot easier uh, not to have a re- resolution in, in a narrative framing than in a legal framing, because in a legal framing, you know, you don't want to sanction immoral human activity, right? But if it's in a question of how God can allow, you know, the destruction of the world in the times of Noah, you know, you can you can leave that with a question mark and without um, without a resolution. I should add. What, what, what's amazing about this, this text where the rabbis have Moses challenging God over the theology of, of transgenerational punishment, right? Why children are punished for the sins of the parents. It's really quite an amazing text. When Moses challenges God, God says to Moses, um, you're right. I'm wrong. I will nullify my decree and accept your view from now on only those people who sin only those people shall be punished, which is an amazing text. If you think about it, uh, it's a text, which is resolved. I mean, m- most of these, uh, moral challenges are not resolved, but this one is, and you, according to this text, you have to cross out that phrase in the 10 commandments that, that the- theology was wrong. And that theology was a mistaken one, which is a very, very radical claim. I think we may be getting that, uh, Talking about that in a minute.
0: Yeah, so to move from this issue of sort of ethical reflection in the narrative to sort of theology proper, that is, language about God and the nature of God's self, um, at the conclusion of your work, you you make a suggestion that these protest narratives might actually reveal something significant about how these rabbinic authors understand the very nature of God. Exactly. Um, can, you, can you say something about what you think you're uncovering in looking at these narratives and how they might uh, conceptualize the nature of God itself?
1: Sure. sure. Um, it's well known that in the Bible, um, God is presented as a, as a human-like character um, with, with body and uh, anthropomorphically. God has body, human-like uh, limbs, and human-like emotions. God loves and God gets angry and uh, all sorts of, of, of human-like emotions. Um, what we have in rabbinic literature is not uh, an an explanation for the anthropomorphic uh, presentation of God in the Bible. We have the opposite. The rabbis intensify the anthropomorphic imagery of the Bible. So now um, God is uh, God suffers with his people. God cries. God dances. God rides horses. God is a matchmaker. God plays with sea monsters. You know, you have all these sorts of uh, images of God that are even more human than what we have in Scripture. God prays every day. God puts on the, the Jewish phylacteries that fill in. God puts on the prayer shawl um, every day. And I think um, this uh, humanization of God in rabbinic literature that goes even beyond the Bible, um, I think will help t- us to understand the rabbinic celebration of protest. So first of all, um, in rabbinic literature, um, God not only is the author of laws, but God is also subject to the laws of the Torah. God is human-like in the sense that God, too, has to follow the laws of the Torah. So right away, what that does is it gives the the, the rabbis um, a certain standard by which they can hold God accountable. God also has to follow God's own um, to- Torah. But more than that, I think what, what, what the, the humanization of God does for the rabbis is, on the one hand, it makes... Uh, a God even closer to the Jewish people, right? In response to the Christian claim that since Jews rejected Jesus, God uh, has abandoned His people, God has destroyed the temple. No, God is close with His people, um, and by pre- presenting God in a human-like fashion, it allows for this kind of intimacy between. Uh, between humans and particularly between Jews um, and God, but what it also does is it allows for protest, right? Because if God is presented not as a uh, as a king, you know, towards his subject, but as a king vis a vis his loved one, is if God is presented as a um, as a friend, if God is presented as a brother, if God is presented as uh, as maintaining a very intimate, close, human-like relationship with uh, with the human being that that allows for protest, right? It it, it kind of um, it flattens the hierarchy, right? Because it's now no longer this transcendent God; it's God who's very imminent. God is very close, and God is very human. And just like in the human to human realm criticizing another human is a legitimate act in the jewish tradition as a matter of fact it's considered a virtuous act in the jewish tradition it's a mitzvah to criticize another jew when they've done something wrong i think the rabbis really by envisioning god as a a human-like character it allows it legitimizes this kind of an inter um, reaction and i think that's also why you don't find a similar celebration of protest in medieval judaism Because medieval Jewish philosophy no longer sees God as a character, but God as a concept. Right. In the medieval Jewish philosophy, Maimonides, God is is the unmoved mover. Right. It's the Aristotelian God who is transcendent. Right. To claim that God is human like in medieval Jewish philosophy is heresy. It's idolatry. So you don't find that in the writings of Jewish philosophy. You also don't won't find this this motif in the writings of medieval Jewish mysticism because there, too, God is not a human-like character. God is, you know, these ten different um, spherot, these ten different aeons, forces, uh, aspects of God that interact with each other in some sort of a mechanical fashion. So there, too, you don't have like a, a unified character of God where you have a relationship with. So I think this intensified humanization of God in rabbinic literature allows, uh, uh, makes it, it fits very well with um, with this motif of protest. Let me also add that, what I think the, 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 the intensified humanization of God in rabbinic literature, I think really hits an extreme um, in that in rabbinic literature, God also concedes moral, moral makes moral concessions, and, 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 and in its really transformative way. Going back to the example I gave about um, parent, uh, uh, God punishing children for sins of the parents, I mean, that's a radical, radical shift. That you have in rabbinic literature. That's a radical concession that God may not be morally perfect. And I think that claim is really the height of the humanization of God. That not only does God have human-like emotions, but that God may not always make the right moral decision is something that um, other scholars of Jewish studies have not noted when presenting rabbinic texts. And I'm not... You know, I I think it's a radical claim. But I think, look, I think this is what the rabbis are saying in many of these texts that are found in the Tanhumo Yilam Deinu. And I think by seeing God as conceding critique in these various encounters with God, I think it also is a response to that earliest Sifre text that I noted. Remember the Sifre text that claimed that one can never challenge God because God is perfect. I think many of these texts in Tanhumi and were saying, well, wait one second, maybe criticizing God may not be that problematic because maybe God is so human-like that God may even make moral mistakes. And I think that's the real scandal of rabbinic literature. I think that's really the scandal of the book as well, that I'm uncovering these rabbinic claims about divine imperfection.
0: One last question. I, I wonder how your work here is representative, or if you think your work is representative, I should say, of some recent developments in the study of rabbinic literature. That is, I mean, where do you think you might be pushing scholars of rabbinic and other late antique religious cultures to explore?
1: Well, I think um, I think one of the um, challenges, one of the problems I see in the scholarly study of rabbinic literature is that there's been an obsession with Form over content, and what I mean by that is everyone is interested in knowing. Well, you know, what what what, what is the cultural influence, right? Were the rabbis most influenced by the Greco-Roman culture, maybe by the Syriac Christians? Um, you know, this latest uh, interest and obsession by my closest of friends, who are are obsessed with uh, whether Zoroastrianism. You know, uh, influence the Babylonian Talmud, and to what extent did or did it not? Um, uh, Other scholars are interested, you know, in philology or in what can what can be learned uh, about the history of the period. Um, Other scholars spend much time on the literary dimensions, trying to use the recent uh, literary theory and apply it to uh, the, the, the forms of rabbinic literature and you have very little in terms of scholarship about the content of rabbinic literature. For whatever reason, if you look at the studies of medieval Jewish philosophy and medieval Jewish mysticism, there's a much more of a balance between content and form. And I think rabbinic uh, literature, for whatever reason, there's less of an interest in the specific content, um, m- maybe understandably, because the minutia of rabbinic law is not quite that interesting on its own right, other than being a a kind of a marker of history, culture, and literature. Um, But I think if you look at the non-legal sections of rabbinic literature, on the ethics, on the theology, that there are really kind of really complicated and interesting and provocative ideas uh, that are embedded within the non-legal rabbinic sections. And with regard to um, theology, ethics, and biblical interpretation, that I think have not yet really um, – uh, have not really garnered enough attention in, this, in the field of rabbinic literature. Let me just give you one example. In, in a recent um, Cambridge uh, companion to the Talmud uh, that was done by a phenomenal scholar, um, uh, Charlotta von Robert from Stanford, um, you have all these different articles dealing with rabbinic literature, and there's not one article on rabbinic theology. And I think that's a problem. You know, people think, oh, you know, the rabbis never did theology, right? It's not a rabbinic thing. But obviously, if you expand the category of theology to include, you know, all types of reflections on the nature um, of God, even non-logical, non-rational, non-logocentric reflections on on God, but more kind of – rabbinic impulses um, that are not necessarily rationally worked out, but there are reflections on the nature of God, I think you find theology in, in rabbinic literature, and I think that this is an area that I think more scholars should be paying attention to. Thank you so
0: much. Once again, this is uh, Doe Weiss and his book out from uh, University of Pennsylvania Press, Pious Irreverence. Confronting God in Rabbinic Judaism.
1: Thank Thanks you, again. Philip. It was really wonderful, uh wonderful morning talking to you about my book. Thank you so much. Thank you.